what we could call the first church of Antioch was not an old church, but it was growing in more ways than one. It was growing. The church had been established at some point around 42 AD. That's about 10 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was a, it was Jewish Christians from Jerusalem who shared the good news in Antioch with both Jews and Gentiles. That's a word most of you know. It just means non-Jews. Our word ethnic comes from the same word in Greek, ethne. It means the nations. It's how the Jews talked about the non-Jewish peoples, the nations. So these Jews from Jerusalem were sharing this good news about Jesus with both Jews and Gentiles in this city that was at the time the third largest in the Roman Empire, Antioch. In fact, this new church, this young church's witness about Christ grew so pervasive that these followers, these disciples were being referred to by their neighbors, maybe in a pejorative sense, maybe in a mocking sense. They were being referred to as Christ ones or little Christ's. That, of course, is the now common word that we pronounce Christian. This is where it first took place, Antioch. In addition to their zeal, the first church of Antioch had good, godly leaders. As we heard last time, these men were listed for us in the opening verses of Acts chapter 13. Furthermore, two of these leaders had just returned from a, an extremely successful missionary trip to both the island of Cyprus and up into Roman Asia Minor. But within probably just a couple of years, the key, this key church, often called by historians the cradle of Christianity, Antioch, within a couple years, this church was under attack, not from the outside, but from the inside. The opening verse of Acts chapter 15 describes this threat. Look at verse 1 with me. But some men came down, that's altitude, came down from Judea, even though it's to the south. They came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this mindset is also evident in verse 5 of this same chapter. Scan down there. It is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. But we're told in verse 2 that this teaching was strongly opposed by the first church of Antioch's two resident missionaries, Paul of Tarsus and Barnabas of Cyprus. They took these teachers to task. Eventually, the ensuing verses describe how this dispute was then taken to Jerusalem so that the apostles and the elders there could help bring some resolution. They could resolve this matter. And that, brothers and sisters, 
Friends, that is the setting for our study passage this morning. So, after a powerful statement by the Apostle Peter in verses 7 through 11, James weighs in. This is not the Apostle James. He had already been killed by this point, martyred for Christ. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the full son of Joseph and Mary. James is most likely at this point, the we might call him the lead elder over the church in Jerusalem. So look at verse 13 with me as James speaks. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it, as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles, the nations who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James goes on. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, we'll stop there. I want you all to notice that there are three parts to the response provided by James. At least that's how I'd like to break it down this morning. First, take a look at verses 13 through 18. There, we'll take a look at the screen too. James, in those verses, wants to absolutely confirm God's grace to the Gentiles. Second, in verse 20, James offers God's guidance for the Gentiles. And in verse 21, third, I believe James wants to explain this call for God's graciousness through the Gentiles. So, why don't we look more closely at those ideas as we're moving through this text that God has for us this morning from his holy word. Did you hear, going back to verses 13 through 18, did you hear in those verses that James was relying on revelation in order to confirm God's redemption? It was God's revelation that confirmed God's redemption. So he references there two instances of divine revelation. First, in verse 14, He directs his listeners back to God's revelation to Simon Peter, who is called Simeon here. That's his Hebrew name, Simeon. This revelation that would eventually lead to the salvation of the Gentile Cornelius and his household. You're familiar with that because you read it back in Acts chapter 10. So that revelation, including the vision from God, angelic intervention that brought all of that together, this is the first instance of revelation that James is pointing to. But James goes on in verses 15 through 18, he goes back even further to the scriptural revelation of the prophet Amos. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 
is what is quoted here in this text. As this 8th century BC prophet foretold, God would not only one day restore the Davidic throne through Jesus, the son of David, but in so doing, he would also bring the Gentiles, the nations under his glorious reign. So again, James is pointing out the fact that God himself has attested to what is happening. That God has put his seal, right, on the, the, the redemption of the Gentiles. James is just pointing these guys to what God has said. James can't say anything more than that. He can't say anything above that. He simply reminds them of what God has testified to. But it's also important to understand the flow of the text here. It's really critical that we understand this. We need to understand that James is following up here on what Peter had just stated in verses 7 through 11. And in light of that, we need to see that James does not disagree with Peter. There's no disagreement. Nor does he add any qualification to anything that Peter has said. Right? He's simply building on what Peter has said. He doesn't add qualification to this idea that God has taken from the Gentiles, verse 14, a people for his name. Again, it's incredibly important that we stress this because it was Peter in those earlier verses, verses 7 through 11, who had corrected these men. These, these, these men who were pushing for Gentile circumcision and Gentile law-keeping. It was Peter who corrected them. As Peter reminded everyone, everyone who was present, verse 8, God gave them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And, verse 9, He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. You, you can't get any clearer than this in what Peter is saying. Therefore, Peter could say in verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Isn't that an amazing uh, rebuttal? <laughs> it's just so clear and concise. It's right to the point of attacking the, the, the false claims, the false agenda of some of these Jewish Christians. So not only is James crystal clear about the fact that God himself has recently and then long ago confirmed his plan to redeem the Gentiles, but he also endorses the truth that Peter has just declared. Jews and Gentiles alike are saved through grace, by faith, not by getting circumcised, not by keeping the law of Moses. Now, with that idea of law-keeping in mind, let's think carefully about where James goes next. This is also really important to see. Look back at verse 20, if you would. One of the things that I believe God wants us to see here is that though James does not believe law-keeping is required for new life, is required to earn new life, that doesn't mean there are not requirements that go hand in hand with new life. In fact, the word requirements is exactly 
the word that James uses in verse 28 of this chapter. You see that? He's restating what he's just talked about in verse 20. He uses that same word, requirements. He's using that word to describe the guidance he provides for them here in verse 20. What should these new Gentile Christians do? They should abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, to make sense of that list, because it's a very interesting list, isn't it? (laughs) To make sense of that list, the first thing I'd encourage you to do is look at the order given in verses 28 and 29. That's simply a restatement of verse 20. The order, I think, is a little more helpful there. For it, uh, Verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, notice again, James is speaking with the authority of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? It's not just his suggestion. It's not just something he kind of pulled out of his left nostril and said, you know, this sounds like a good idea. We should try this for the Gentiles. No, he's saying that we, he believes that the Holy Spirit is working through their leadership, the apostles and the elders, to give them this guidance. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now, that's the exact same order that you would find in chapter 21, verse 25, where there is yet another restatement of these same requirements. And I think that order that appears twice in Scripture is so helpful because it helps us to see, for example, that of the four requirements listed here, the first three are linked together because they have to do with food. Specifically, what should and should not be eaten. Or what should not be eaten. Uh, Additionally, those last two food rules also go together since they connect back to Old Testament commands like Genesis chapter 9 verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life in it, that is its blood. The strangled category, kind of a weird one there, but it's simply added because if you strangled an animal to death, it makes it much harder to drain the blood out of it. It makes it hard to get the blood out of the meaty portions of an animal. Animals were killed. The prescription in the Old Testament was, I think, called desanguination, desanguination, which just means you basically have the animal upright, you cut their throat, you let the blood drain out as the heart beats the blood out same time. So even if you strangled an animal and hung it upside down, you're not getting that You're not getting that pumping action. So that's the qualification here. Those two really go together. So these first three about food make sense when put together. Now to those first three requirements, we read that James and the leaders have added sexual immorality to this list. Again, this is a Greek word that we find in our culture as well. It's the Greek word porneia, porneia. Porneia is a general Greek word that refers to a a wide variety of sexual immorality, uh, sexual acts. And really, to understand the sexual ethic of the Bible is very simple. We don't have to go through long lists of things. The sexual ethic of the Bible, always in the Old Testament and New Testament, is that porneia, this illicit sexual activity, 
is every sexual act that takes place outside of the God-designed one-man, one-woman marriage covenant. Anything that takes place outside of that circle, right, is porneia. All of it. Whatever permutation, variation, version, iteration you can think of. And our culture has become radically creative in coming up with all sorts of wild and weird things, right, about with, that have to do with sex and sexuality. So the Bible is very simple in terms of where it shows us this is home. This is, the, this is what God's design is. But even from the oldest times, thousands and thousands of years ago, we see the very same things we still see today. There is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes. So that's what, God, that's what James has, and the leaders have added as well. The Holy Spirit has added. Now, from one perspective, these requirements are not unusual. For example, Paul wrote about food sacrifice to idols in his first letter to the Corinthian Christians. That was something they were dealing with there. How to deal with this idea of food sacrifice to idols, especially food that was then sold after it was used in the temple of Aphrodite or temple of Hermes, the temple of Zeus. Then it was sold in the marketplace. And Christians were uh, disagreeing about what you should do with that. Can you eat it? Should you not eat it? So Paul's writing about this issue. And in the same letter to the Corinthians, he also talks about fleeing sexual immorality. And of course, in many other letters of the New Testament, including those of Paul's, he talks about fleeing sexual morality, immorality. In fact, Jesus himself puts these two things together, food sacrifice to idols and sexual morality. He puts the two together in two of his addresses to the churches in Revelation chapter two, the church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira. He speaks about those two things together. So in one sense, this collection of four requirements, three with food, one sexual, having to do with sexual ethics, right? They're not unusual in the New Testament. But from another perspective, this list is kind of odd. Why is it just these commands? (laughs) Shouldn't there be more here? If you had like one chance to write to the brand new Gentile believers... Are these are the things that you would put down there? Isn't the New Testament filled with moral guidance, with spiritual guidance for every follower of Jesus? Why these? Well, to answer those questions, we move to our third point this morning, verse 21. We need to remember the context. How did all of this begin in the first place? You remember the trouble erupted when some Jewish Christians began to argue that the Gentile converts with whom they were now associating as brothers and sisters in Christ, that these non-Jews should act more Jewish. That's where the trouble came from. You need to act more Jewish. We can't forget, friends, we cannot forget how radically new this was for the Jews radically new they had always lived as a very set apart people based on both their religious devotion but then eventually socially and and probably social pride crept in there to say we're we're better than you feelings of superiority 
They had always lived as a very set apart people. And now they were worshiping together. They were eating together. They were serving together with Gentiles. That had to be challenging in a number of ways for these Jewish Christians. But if we look back at verse 21, this is exactly why the list in verse 20, those four things, this is why the list says what it says. Why have James and the elders and the apostles given these requirements about food and sexual morality? Verse 21, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath, every Saturday in the synagogues, Moses is declared. So why is James pointing that out? Because simply, he does not want these new Gentile believers to give any unnecessary offense to either believing or unbelieving Jews in their community. You see, he's teaching them about a sensitivity to the fact that they have entered into a realm where they need to consider the others. Even though these many of these Jews, some of these Jews are considering them in a way that would make them want to become more, you need to become more Jewish. James and the leaders here are saying, no, you need to be sensitive. I want you, we want you to look at them and be sensitive to them as you come together as one believing people. Paul powerfully prescribed this same attitude in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Take a look on the screen. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 31 through 33, you can hear the same exact heart. So whether you eat or drink, writes Paul, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So there's that vertical uh, orientation, right? That vertical focus. But then Paul says that vertical focus, just like the great commandment, should always lead to a horizontal focus as well. Give all glory to God. And you can do that by give, giving no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Be considerate. Be thoughtful about what you're doing, about the message that you communicate through your actions, your choices, the sermon you are preaching as you live your life for Jesus, the letter that you are that others read every single day. Because unnecessarily you could give offense to a believing Jew, that's the churches of God here, to a, to a Jew, an unbelieving Jew that you hope to reach with for Christ, to your pagan, your Greek neighbor. I loved, I'll, this is a little side note, but you're, you'll see, I think if you haven't already, what's really interesting, I think it's in Ephesus where there's a riot that takes place and they keep Paul out of the, they want to keep Paul the riot. And I think it's, um, there's a couple guys who are kind of pulled into it. But it's really interesting that the town clerk eventually steps in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me warn all of you. What's going on right here? This could be an unlawful assembly if, if this is not really being brought together for a, a reason. But the town clerk says something fascinating. He says, these men have given no offense against the great goddess Artemis. What that tells us is that Paul and Barnabas were not, or Paul and Silas were not blasting into town and saying, oh, look at these statues, look at these idols, you know, you're all wicked, disgusting idolaters. 
They weren't, they weren't spending their time. The lion's share of their preaching was not trying to break down and attack all of the cultural aberrations. No, they devoted their time to talking about the genuine article, about the good stuff. They, they, they let others understand that as they preach and talk about the truth about who God was and his son Jesus Christ and what had taken place, that they would understand the implication of that, that there is one God, there is one Lord, there is one, there is one path forward into new life. They didn't have to spend the time attacking and giving unnecessary offense. If people worked that out in their head and said, oh, you're saying that my worship is, is false worship? That's, that's, that's true. Yeah, they would have that conversation with them. So I think that's one of these ways that Paul is saying, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Both food and sex were everywhere connected in the ancient world to idolatrous worship. Pervasive in the Greco-Roman world. And while sexual purity was first a matter of obedience to God, abstaining from certain foods was also about setting aside one's rights in order to keep a brother or sister from stumbling. These leaders simply wanted the Gentiles to show the same concern and grace to their new Jewish brothers that they had shown, that God had shown and was showing to them. God had given them abundant concern and grace and love. And all we're seeing here on this list of these four requirements is the leadership in Jerusalem saying, we want you to show the same concern and grace for your Jewish brothers. Now look back with me at verse 19. James declares there, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. I love that. We should not trouble them. We could, and you guys are, some of you guys are troubling them, but we should not trouble them. How were these Gentiles being troubled? How might they be further troubled based on the, 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 the result of this council that had come together to talk about this matter? Well, first of all, take a look on the screen. First of all, they were being troubled because they were being unsettled about the basis of their salvation. And number two, they were being, un, they were being troubled because some were imposing upon them cultural expectations rather than divine expectations. Let me take that last one first. Expanding on that point, it's important that we are clear about how God moved his people from the old covenant to the new covenant. That's made clear in so many passages in the New Testament. He's moved them from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It was made clear in the Old Testament in terms of the prophecies, the predictions of what God would do, uh, most especially and clearly in Jeremiah chapter 31. The only place in the Old Testament where it mentions this New Covenant, but it's crystal clear there. 
this transition between Old Covenant and New Covenant, it means that not everything that was once a divine expectation was or is still a divine expectation. Does that make sense? It means that we go into Scripture with the right lenses and tools to be able to sift and say, God's Word has told me that this is no longer a divine expectation. Therefore, what some of the Jewish teachers did not understand is that their expectations for the Gentiles had simply become cultural expectations. They still thought they were divine expectations. This is what you need to do. When in fact, in light of God's word, they should have said, this is what we'd like you to do. We'd feel more comfortable if you did this. It would be easier for us (laughs) if you did this. But God's new covenant people is a diverse people. Revelation 7 gives us that beautiful picture of worshipers before the throne from every people, every tribe, every tongue, worshiping God. It's a diverse people. And though there can be cultural friction in the church at times, we should never give in to the temptation to elevate our cultural expectations and press them on others as divine expectations. Sadly, this has been a common pitfall over the centuries for the church. It still happens today. The very best of us can still slip into this mindset. A real easy example of that is music, worship music. You will hear some people talk from either side or some side. They will talk about music in a way that borders on this is the only way that God is honored if we sing this song. No, 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 no. Uh, That's the spirit of the age. God is only glorified when we sing this way with these instruments. And some will even say, God is most glorified and we are not spiritually tainted by the world if we use no instruments when we're singing. You can find all sorts of variations of this. But again, it's that cultural expectation expectation that's become almost a divine expectation brothers and sisters we need to guard against this because we do not want to trouble our brothers and sisters we don't want to trouble those who have turned to christ we want to encourage them the same spirit that we see in the leadership here now of course the even more foundational issue and we'll close with this the even more foundational issue highlighted by this passage is how some of these Gentile believers were being misled about the basis of their salvation. Think with me about the two correctives that God has provided for us this morning through these verses. And we need to hear these correctives. We need to be reminded of them. We need to put them in our holster or our toolbox and have them available because you will meet people who are struggling in this way even if you yourself are not. Two correctives that God highlights here, that God helps us understand here. Think with me about these. On one hand, this passage describes an extreme that we know, take a look, as legalism. What is the confession of legalism? The confession is this. 
If I obey God, I will be accepted by God. If I obey God, I will be accepted by God. But we know the truth, don't we? We are saved by works. But those works are the works of Jesus Christ. The works and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his victory over death. The works were his righteousness that he brought to the cross that he might be the unblemished, the spotless lamb of God died, crucified, killed, murdered for sinners like us. The works and work of Christ is the basis of our salvation, not our own works. That's clear not only from this passage, but many, many others. But on the other hand, this passage also speaks to the opposite extreme. It also speaks to what we could call, has been called, antinomianism or libertinism. Anti, you know what that means, against, namas in Greek is law, against the law. Libertine, to have freedom. You believe you have freedom to do whatever you want to do. What is the confession of libertinism? It's, I don't need to obey God since I am already accepted by God. See the contrast there between legalism and libertinism on the extremes? If I obey God, I will be accepted by God. Whoop, all the way to the other side. I don't need to obey God because I am already accepted by God. There is evidence from the New Testament that some Gentile converts actually did believe this. They did, they did think this way. But it's also clear that many Jewish critics believe that this was the logical conclusion of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. That if you let people actually believe that they were saved by grace alone through faith alone, this is where it would lead. That grace would be viewed as some kind of permission or license to sin. That you can get away with anything. You get a divine hall pass, right? From God to be, to, 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 to sin in whatever way you wanted to. That's why they were arguing for law keeping. These Gentiles need the, the guardrails. They need to, you know, they need the structure. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter two. If I rebuild what I tore down. He's like, I'm not rebuilding that structure. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. All that structure did was confirm that I was a wicked sinner who deserved the judgment of God. That's not my life now. Because my life now is, is live for Christ. You know, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer uh, I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I'm living now, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Paul's answer to this kind of thinking, both the libertinism and the response from the, legal, the legalism crowd. Brothers and sisters, friends, have you been troubled by either of these extremes? Have you been troubled by either of these extremes? Are you even today being troubled by one of these extremes? It can be very subtle, can it? Very hard to detect sometimes when we're in this mindset. Do you find yourself, for example, slipping into that mindset that says, if I obey God, I will be accepted by God? Do you regularly feel like a spiritual failure? Do you regularly feel that God is, is disappointed with you? 
Do you regularly feel that God is upset or angry with you? If that's you, if that's you, be encouraged by God's word through Peter this morning. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. That's how we're saved, through the grace of our Lord Jesus. In light of verse 10, don't place on yourself a yoke that none of God's people have ever been able to bear. Don't do it to yourself. God's word to you this morning is please rest knowing that Christ bore that yoke for you. And now wonderfully, he offers you a new yoke. He offers you a new, new yoke. And that actually flows right into the next point. Because maybe you find yourself at the opposite extreme. Maybe you find yourself slipping into that, mind, that mindset that says, I don't need to obey God since I'm already accepted by God. No, most people don't say it that explicitly. <laughs> it's much more subtle, usually underneath the surface, that people accept this perspective. But many people are still living this exact way. You may be right now in this season of your life downplaying your sinful compromise by telling yourself things like, well, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. True. But how you're using it (laughs) probably isn't healthy. Maybe faith in your life is just a box. Maybe it's a box that's disconnected from every other box in your life. And you only open that box when it's convenient. Maybe on a Sunday morning. Maybe for you, faith is more about going to heaven. Well, I know I'm blood-bought, Pastor. I know I'm good. I'll see you other side of Jordan, right? I'll see you in glory with God. And that, as that emphasis continues to be the main thing, there's a downplaying of this life here. You know, it really doesn't matter what happens in this life, right? It's not that important. What's important is that I'm going to heaven, that I'm saved. If that's you, I pray you are challenged by God's word through James this morning that there may not be requirements to earn new life, but there are requirements that go with new life. That go hand in hand with new life. You see, a biblical biblical confession in light of the gospel of grace is not I obey. Sorry, it's not if I obey God, I will be accepted by God. It's not I don't need to obey God since I'm already accepted by God. A biblical confession in light of the gospel of grace is this. I am accepted by God, therefore I obey God. That's the truth. I obey God with joy, with gratitude, with a new heart. And that new heart beats with love for God and love for others. Isn't that exactly what James and the elders are prescribing here? Love for God and love for others. Are you troubled by either of these extremes? Legalism, libertinism. Or are you troubling others with a misunderstanding of the truth? If so, I want you, I want to encourage you to talk with God this morning. Let us come to Him now in prayer. Let us come holding firmly to the truth of the gospel. And may all of us, 
in light of this morning's passage, be like the church in Antioch when they received this counsel from the, from the leaders in Jerusalem. Look at verse 31. May we be like this. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.